to the Change Makers LA podcast. My name is Tanua Thrash Intuk, and I'm the Executive Director of the Local Initiative Support Corporation Los Angeles office. In today's episode, we'll be talking about some strategies for investment and forward movement in communities with two very special guests. I'm happy to be joined today by the National President and CEO of LISC, Mr. Maurice Jones. LISC recently rolled out a program called Project 10X, which is an ambitious $1 billion strategy designed to root out and address racial inequity across the country. With a focus on capacity building, affordable housing, and racial equity, the program will invest in BIPOC communities to tackle the vast difference in wealth between people of color and their white counterparts. Maurice, thanks for being on today. Thanks for having me, Tuanua. It's nice to be with you and nice to be with Andre. Yes. Well, we introduce our other guests we have here today. Also with us is Andre Perry. He's a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and a columnist for the Hedgender Report and a scholar in residence at American University. His recent book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities, is a thoughtful analysis of the economic and social devaluation of Black lives and communities in America. Andre, thanks for being on with us. Oh, it is a pleasure to know, and also a pleasure to be with Maurice. Great. So let's turn to our conversation, because I know our listeners are very excited to have the two of you on with us today. So with the protests occurring across the nation as the pandemic continues, there's a lot of talk about racial inequality, police brutality, social and economic justice. And today we're going to dive into those topics and talk about the work that LIS and our partners are doing around this critical moment. And Andre, we're going to dive into what some of your research and experience is and what you think about sort of the current conditions that are plaguing the Black community and really all communities across the U.S. So Maurice, I've mentioned already this concept of Project 10X. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that, what the impetus for this strategy is, and why it is so critical in this very moment? Sure. Well, let me just give you the background. So if you look at what's happening in in the country today, across the board, the average net worth of a white family in America today is 10 times greater than the average net worth of a black family thus 10x. In addition to that, we work, as you know, Tanua, across about 36 local offices. And if you look in every single last one of these offices, what you'll see is that the life expectancy gap between the places where we work, which are census tracts overwhelmingly inhabited by black and brown folks, And then the more wealthy census tracts overwhelmingly inhabited by white folks, the life expectancy gap is at least 10 years difference. In fact, in many places, it's 20 years. And in some places across the country, it's 30 years difference. So you can have people living 10 minutes away in the same town, and the life expectancy gap is 30 years or 10 years or more. And the overwhelming reasons have nothing to do with whether they were both born in the same hospital or not. It's the conditions under which people are living. The other piece for us that really sort of highlights 10X or motivates 10X is 
we know that if you're going to address these gaps in wealth and in health and in opportunity that are breaking down by race and place, you got to be at this work at least 10 years. And we like to say, you also have to be thinking in multiples of 10. You've got to invest in multiples of 10. So we've got a billion dollar project here that we are launching, that we launched a little over a week ago. The idea is to invest in those levers that really are the most powerful when it comes to advancing health and wealth and opportunity. So it's about home ownership and small business ownership. That's one block. It's about credit and capital access and building up the financial institutions, BIPOC-led banks and credit unions that have as their primary market black and brown people. That's the second lane. The third lane is about advancing good jobs, using our capital to invest in companies that are going to provide jobs with livable wages and benefits. And then the fourth is addressing those institutions or those enterprises within a community that really build wealth. Schools, healthcare centers, broadband, those kinds of things, arts. And then for us, the last one is safety and justice. Though we pick those five areas. So those are the four lanes that make up the substance of what we call 10X. We're going to invest over a 10-year period. We want to do a billion dollars. We're in the midst of fundraising. We've got some commitments now. In fact, our own commitment of $20 million to it. And we want to be at this with partners for the next 10 years. We think if we can do that at that scale and for that kind of longevity, that we can really move the meter when it comes to closing racial wealth, health, and opportunity gaps. That's what 10X is about. Wow, Marisa, you were able to break that down pretty quickly, but clearly the idea that there is a clear connection between the health of communities and the wealth of communities and the amount of wealth that's available and all the strategies that you've mentioned are strategies that LISC and other entities have worked on, but putting that billion dollar naming it as Project 10X, saying you've got to invest for the long term and in a variety of areas is really critical to being able to see some movement and to see some success. So part of why we're even at this point is because of issues around, let's just say, segregation. I mean, Maurice, you talked about the fact that people who could be born in the same hospital, but yet have different outcomes in terms of their life circumstances. And Andre, right now, you recently wrote about segregation as a form of social distancing. That's a term that we're using right now because of COVID-19, which has led to these economic and physical sicknesses in Black communities, some of which Maurice just talked about. How can leaders shape public health and economic policy in a way that addresses the past and present impacts of systematic and structural racism? Yeah, we should do a little bit of a history lesson on this because remember, redlining actually began in Baltimore in, in 1910 when the then mayor basically said, we're going to isolate blacks in areas to prevent them from spreading disease and crime in areas. Now, what's interesting, that same philosophy was picked up by the federal government. Obviously, redlining occurred there. 
and you see the impacts of it on Black Americans today. Now, we know the material loss that redlining caused, that the redlining prohibited Black people from getting low-interest loans, getting down payment assistance, and therefore, those families could not pass down the equity that's gained in their home over time to their children, and their children cannot pass it down to their children. And that helped create the wealth gap, that 10-time difference that Maurice talked about. But fast forward to 2020. It's, it's funny, when I hear business owners talk about, we need federal relief. I mean, after a few weeks, you heard business leaders shouting that the federal government, federal government has to step in. Well, try being socially distanced for generations. What does a response look like then? Blacks have been distanced in terms of housing support, business investment, infrastructure investment. In fact, many of the infrastructure policies of the past barreled through or created highways, demolishing actually Black infrastructure and business development in Black neighborhoods. And that's still with us. So that wealth gap that Maurice described is a symptom of the historic discriminatory policies that impacted Black communities. So moving forward, we should be trying to restore the value that's been extracted by racism. Just briefly, you know, one of my major studies, I look that's that's the sort of the anchor of my book, Know Your Price, is that I looked at home prices in black communities where the share of the black population is greater than 50%. And I compared them to areas where the share of the black population is less than a percent. And I controlled for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics so that we could get an apples to apples comparison. And what we found is that homes equivalent homes now in Black neighborhoods are underpriced by 23%, about $48,000 per home. Accumulatively, there's $156 billion in lost equity. That $156 billion could have financed more than 4 million businesses based on the average amount Blacks use to start up their firm. It could have financed more than 8 million college degrees based on the average amount of a public four-year education replaced the pipes in Flint, Michigan 3,000 times over, more than double the annual economic burden of the opioid crisis. It's a big number. And so when we're talking about these policies, and the reason why I love what Maurice is talking about, because this is happening in business, this devaluation is happening in housing, it's happening in education, and we got to figure out ways to invest in those areas. And the reason why I, I do the research the way I do, I want to show the strength in Black communities. The homes in Black neighborhoods are strong, stronger than they are priced. Business leaders are worth more than they are priced. Leadership in general is the value. So for me, it's about restoring the value that's been extracted by racism to solve a lot of these problems. The power in the concept now of social distancing is one that people and most people right now in our country can relate to, right? They've been social distanced from their economic centers and jobs and opportunities. And when you, you know, we're crediting you with this idea that making that connection, Black people have been saying for generations and hundreds of years that I've been, that we are social distanced from opportunity. And I love how you put that in housing and being able to have the equity to start 
you know, jobs and to start businesses and to be able to move forward economically. And even in the PPP loan fiasco, we saw a social distancing in the policy that is supposed to address the economic loss as a result of social distancing. Remember, 95% of Black businesses did not receive that PPP loan subsidy when it was rolled out initially. And then they tried to do everything to backfill. But at that point, the damage was done. And so for me, it is about providing access where it's been denied historically over time. So when I hear the $1 billion number, when I first heard it at the top of the conversation, I said, wow, that's huge. That's ambitious, Maurice. You know, we can do this. Can we do this? But we got to do this. And then I hear the billions of dollars you're talking about, Andre. This is $100 billion or so that you, in terms of value that you're saying has been extracted and, and not been made available to the Black community. And Maurice, you often talk about how in order for us to really extend and reach our full humanity is what you call it, so that people, regardless of race, regardless of background, have a chance to be able to be part of the American dream. We've got to invest in the affordable housing that LIST does, in growing small businesses. Right now, this is so critical to the moment. How has LISC been a part of moving that mission forward right now? Well, I think the work that Andre is talking about is so powerful. I saw a data point which suggests that if we actually could close the wealth gap between whites and blacks between now and 2026, I believe, I think it was an eight to 10 year frame, that it would actually add $1 trillion to $1.5 trillion to the GDP of the country, right? So this is, to Andre's point, this is critical for communities of color, but it is critical for the American democratic experience. And so what we've been trying to do at LISC is to, with intentionality, invest in those assets in these black and brown communities and these low wealth communities, these rural communities as well, that we know are undervalued and that Mm -hmm. we know will produce the kinds of opportunities for full humanity that you're seeing in zip codes that are dominated by whites. I mean, it's just that simple. So what we've been doing is investing in small businesses. So Andre mentioned the PPP piece. So we were a PPP lender. We got in in the second round. We made sure that what we were going to do with respect to PPP is invest in businesses led by people of color, businesses who did not have relationships with the mainstream financial institutions that were the biggest players in the first round. So if you look at our PPP portfolio, for example, we have lent about $50 million via PPP. Well, about 95% of our borrowers are businesses led by people of color. About 85% are businesses led by women. About 85% or so are businesses working in low-wealth communities. The overwhelming bulk of our businesses 
are 10 people and fewer with average annual revenues of a million dollars or less, which makes up the bulk of black owned businesses, of businesses led by people of color that we have across the country. So what Lisk has been doing is with intentionality, focusing on black and brown communities and low wealth communities, urban and rural across the country with housing and small business and health. And that's the work that also will form the basis of Project 10X moving forward. I mean, to Andre's point, one of the things that I was doing before COVID was traveling to our 30-some markets. In almost every market, people could take me down a highway or a road or an avenue that had been intentionally driven there or placed there or constructed there to interrupt, in all honesty, a Black business corridor or a Black residential corridor. And this was intentional. This was, to Andre's point, an effort to isolate the Black community. Well, as I say to folks, you can't address something that was done intentionally using race by not being intentional using race. You have to be just as intentional if you're going to reverse, if you're going to grow as we were in discriminating and hurting communities. And that's what LISC has been trying to, to be a part of. That's great. And Andre, this, I mean, you and Maurice have really started going down this line of the importance of the Black business, right? I know that there's research out there that talks about the importance of Black business ownership, what it does to Black wealth, what it does to Black jobs, what it does to Black communities. And Maurice, you know, has talked about what happens when that disinvestment gets disrupted. So for you, you know, you've researched the impact of this pandemic on Black businesses. How does this intersection of already heightened economic vulnerability and this pre-existing racial wealth gap affect these businesses and entrepreneurs right now? And to some extent, Maurice has summed up with, he told us that if we could close this racial wealth gap, how much more we'd be experiencing an economic opportunity. But what impact to the larger community, what is that impact when Black businesses don't exist, where they're capital constrained or not able to really get access to opportunity? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, the Black community represents about 13, 14% of the population in America, but only 2.2% of employer firms. So there's only 2.2% of, of firms with at least two employees that are, are Black-owned. Now, if the percent of employer firms match the population, there would be nearly be 750,000 more Black companies in the United States. Now, now, Andre, when you say employer, you mean companies that are owned by Black people that have employees? That's, yeah, at least okay. two employees. Now, I'll put in another one. Currently, Black firms bring in an average revenue of $1 million compared to non-Black firms that bring in $6.5 million. Now, if Black firms increase their average revenue to the level of non-Black firms, that would increase total revenue in Black businesses by $800 billion. $800. Now, so we're just talking about equity here. You know, we're talking about what if 
what everyone else got and or met the population. I'll throw through it two more at you. Black-owned employer businesses created an average of 10 jobs per firm compared to 23 for non-Black. If the average employees per Black firm increased to the same level as non-Black businesses, 23 million new jobs would be created. 23 million new jobs. And Black-owned firms pay on average of 30,000 for their employees compared to non-Black firms average of 51,000 per employee. So if Black firms paid the same as non-Black firms, there would be $26 billion increased pay in the economy. So all those numbers that I just shared don't benefit the Black community. It impacts the entire country. So we're cutting our noses and spiting our faces every time we don't invest in Black business. And no, I, I, I just want to be clear. This is not like a situation where you're taking from white people by investing in Black people. There's this idea of scarcity that some folks are preoccupied with. They say, why are you giving Black people when, in fact, a lot of the colorblind approaches are actually rewarding white people by default. But we can talk about that later. But I just want to be clear, grow the pie. You're not taking away from higher population. You're adding to the economy, adding to innovation, adding the number of innovators, adding the number of businesses. You add when you invest in Black firms and in Black communities, because my work largely examines underappreciated assets, meaning if you just add water, they will grow. Now, the places where you, if you add water, they will grow are black majority communities and black, on, black and brown entrepreneurs. We need to get the water to them. We need to make sure that they're invested in at levels commensurate to their, their peers. Well, what's so, ex I mean, when I hear that, I think it is important to keep underscoring this idea that we are growing the pie, right? The work of lists, the work of investing in underinvested places and people and businesses is all about growing the pie. We're not even at the point of dividing it up and figuring out who gets it just yet, but let's let's add the water and, and see what we get. And you know, Maurice, part of what Project 10X is all about is to me, it's testing out the idea that if we invest a considerable amount in the communities that need it most. In the areas that you described with housing, small business, safety, all health, all of those areas for an extended period of time, then we can have sort of the impact that we want to see and test it out and see how this grows out. How do you see, Maurice, Project 10X impacting the intersection of racial inequality and public health and being able to be a testing ground for making the difference on the investments that we need. Yeah, well, we know that the connection amongst wealth and health and opportunity is that close, right? That they go hand in hand. And so if you look at health, let's just take health as an example. If you look at health, much of the public debate is about access to clinical settings and whether people have insurance that will allow them to pay for treatment 
by clinicians. And that's great. And don't get me wrong, we need much more of that. However, that's 20% of the determinants of one's health. 80% of the determinants of one's health and lifespan is what happens outside of the clinical setting. It's do you have a healthy and affordable and a stable home to live in? It's do you have a job that pays you a wage that allows you to pay for the things that you need? Housing, food, education. It's do you live in an environment where your full humanity is respected so that you're not living with the stress of discrimination and racism and barriers all the time. These are actually the prime determinants of health. And so we know that if we can invest in advanced wealth and health and opportunity, that they actually move lockstep together. If we move wealth, we will move health. If we move opportunity, we will move wealth. And so that's why we've tried to take a pretty holistic approach to this thing and to really, really break down the four corners that we think you have to most invest in and to do so at scale. That's really the, if you will, the hypothesis of Project 10X. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing all that, Maurice, and making the connection between health and wealth. Andre, I was going to close with you just sharing with us over the last few months, the work of folks like you, the work of folks like LISC and what Maurice has been able to birth in terms of Project 10X, but your work already has been focused on making sure that there's racial justice and opportunity. There's been a lot of protest and a lot of conversation on this topic. What do you think that that means in terms of the hope for our future about your research and other scholars who are talking about these things, who've got the empirical data on this stuff? What impact is that going to have on our economic and health policy going forward? Well, I actually love the fact that folks are in the streets protesting, risking their lives. Obviously, we're still in the, the midst of a pandemic. But, you know, you hear the commentary. Some people say, hey, protests are nice, but you need policy. The reality is that you have to have both, that no one gets the kind of policies we need without people making a demand. And so what I see in these streets is giving me an opportunity to present data and research and policy work in a way that, quite frankly, no one would listen to before people hit those streets. And so you need the folks who are demanding justice in the streets so that the work of Maurice and me can really catch hold because the racial uprising excited capital release, at least from corporate America, like we've never seen before. And so I'm appreciative of it. But I will say that that window is going to close. <laughs> it's going to close pretty quickly. And so we need to, to make sure this new Biden administration picks up where business and philanthropy started investing in black communities. And people see these large numbers. I mean, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars being let out 
on behalf, or not, maybe not hundreds, but certainly lots of billions. J.P. Morgan and Chase announced $30 billion. There's several companies with their billion-dollar initiatives. And we'll, so, we'll claim the hundred billion, hundreds of billions. We'll claim that. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but that would have never happened without people making demand. And so we should be encouraging that same activity that excited those investments that saw a change in the White House. Those things must continue. And I know a lot of people want to see or they want to go back to quote unquote normal, but normal wasn't working for us. It wasn't. And so we need to see the regular investment in black people, black communities, black firms, black housing, because it's been denied for for decades, for decades. That social distancing has existed for decades. And we have now an opportunity to change the way we look upon and invest in Black people. That's great. Well, I feel like so I'm going to close it out here. The change in the, you know, sort of awakening that we've experienced in 2020 in our country has helped bring some people to be able to see some of the data that you, Andre, have been researching and pulling together and writing about for many years and decades. Maurice, it is a moment in a time like this that you happen to be head of LISC nationally which gives rise to the moment of being able to really look at how do we reinvest? Where do we take that energy of needing to reinvest in places that have been social distance, that have been without opportunity, that have been without the access to wealth to close that racial wealth gap with Project 10X? And we're proud that we've got that initiative moving forward. Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for joining us this week on the Changemakers LA podcast. It's been great listening to you, learning from you, and thinking about issues that are impacting communities today. We appreciate all of you out there who are with us who've joined Maurice, Andre, and I as listeners. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so that you're notified of new episodes. Please do share this episode with your colleagues, and thank you for listening today. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having thanks, us. Thanks, thanks for having us. This episode of Changemakers LA was made possible by our partner, Wells Fargo Foundation. If you'd like to learn more about how we provide capital support for small businesses at LISC LA, please visit us online at www.lisc.org backslash Los Angeles and follow us on Twitter at LISC underscore LA. You can find the rest of this series on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Subscribe to hear more conversations about the people and places that shape Los Angeles.